Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On today's podcast, Molly, Bethany, and I are going to discuss what to look for in a food addiction counselor. Counseling is a place where we go to gather information, tools, skills, insights, and ideas. What is unique to being with a skilled counselor over just reading a self-help book where we can get all the things I just listed is that we are accepted and held in a safe container where we are told we are okay. We are not only told we're okay, but we experience this reflected back to us again and again. Counselors who respond to you with an eagerness to fix you or change you hide behind their professional qualifications, but inevitably provoke feelings of shame in you as they are recreating the feeling that something is wrong with you. If your counselor is capable of forming a deep and active emotional connection, you will experience something you've never received from the rest of the world, a sense that you are enough not too much, that no matter what you do, actually, you can't make a mistake in session. That is safety. I recently shared in our sweet sobriety groups some emotionally safe responses you should expect to hear. Thank you for telling me. That sounds hard. That makes sense. I am here. What can I do to help support you? These are welcoming, curious, encouraging responses. Some emotionally unsafe responses you might hear are, you are overreacting. You're too sensitive. You aren't fat. You're perfect. You should dot, dot, dot. Look on the bright side. You've misunderstood me. Let me explain my intention. Why did you do that? These are responding in a dismissive way that erase our feelings and protect your counselor from their own difficult feelings. There is no such thing as the guru counselor. Adequate counseling is not about a specific theory, technique, or modality. It's about what you need, what you think will work for you, and even perhaps a modality that speaks to you. Adequate counselors have a strong sense of their own inadequacies or limitations. Our learned wisdom came from the same mistakes we are trying to help you avoid. They also know they don't have all the answers. They know that their job is actually to help you find you, not us fix you. Counselors who see themselves as having all the answers or sharing that they will fix you can be the most dangerous of all. The real counselor guru embraces not knowing and finds being wrong easy. They are comfortable enough with themselves and they're not knowing. This allows them to focus on you rather than establishing themselves as the expert. The real guru finds no comfort in being seen that way and will discourage it. You pay for the counselor's time. You get to use it however you want to. Listen in as we share more of our thoughts about what counseling is and what it isn't. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, my name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am co-host of Food Junkies podcast along with Clarissa Kennedy and Molly Painshaw. I've been waiting for this episode for quite some time. Food addiction world is getting bigger, 
although there are now some excellent training programs, not everyone who's a food addiction counselor has had that training or follows by the same code of ethics. Costs vary, services vary, expectations between the counselor and the client vary. So what is a person who's looking for help to do? This episode is to address your questions. They're questions that we think you should be asking, that we ask ourselves to ensure that we're providing appropriate service. We're going to talk about expectations of training, of ethics, of practice parameters, of costs, and all other questions in between. If we've missed something, let us know. We'll address it. Become educated about what you want and what the general current practice of care is like. Today, we have Clarissa Kennedy, Molly Painshob, and Bethany Mazaru. We're so excited to do this episode of the Food Junkies podcast. Vera, Molly, and I have been talking about how to set you up for success when it comes to finding the right food addiction professional for you. We thought to have a conversation today around the ethics and accountability for practice, continuing education, qualifications. Why would we think that qualifications would be really important in the field of food addiction? many of us came to these fields because we have our own stories, right? We've needed help at some time. It's also our job when we have our own story to think about what we are bringing for the client and how we are showing up for the clients. This idea of having your own story as being necessary to help someone isn't exactly true in my experience. It does help because you can say that I've been where you are, but I can't be where everybody has been. I might have some knowledge of it, but I also bring skills as a social worker and therapist. When we are showing up for these um, clients, we also need our own coaches and our own therapists. We'd always be doing our own work to to make sure that we're showing up in a healthy way for our clients. Clarissa, what sort of professional qualifications should we be looking for when we're looking for a professional to work with? I think it's going to be very important for the professional to be a part of some kind of association that is going to hold them accountable to a higher ethical standard and that they may have to do continuing education. They may have their own um, insurance or a board I can report to if the professional is not doing the job. I certainly want to know their education. Where did they go to school? What are they particularly trained in? Is there a particular modality? How many years of experience do they have supervision that they're going to regularly? Do they have to check up on their qualifications once a year, maybe do some continuing education. There is a very high standard I must adhere to a certain level of documentation if this is a client that I'm seeing under Ontario social work. Whereas if I have coaching clients, it's a little bit more gray. There is definitely coaching programs out there that have a very high standard, but I want to be clear about what training the professional that I'm working with has had. At the end of the day, is their duty of care to me rather than at the end just for making money? What are your thoughts, Molly? I think you covered a lot of it. Like Bethany said, it's important to remember that we all come to this field for one reason 
some of us have our own personal recovery story, which is what drew us here, but it's not necessarily an important qualification. When we're thinking about professional qualifications, what is your education? What is your supervision? Is there continuing education? Are you going back and learning the newest literature? Is there some sort of accountability? Are you certified through the School of Social Work or the College of Social Work? I'm licensed through two different boards in the state of Montana. So not only am I bound by multiple ethical documents, but also legally, is there some sort of upper echelon that somebody could report to if I've done harm, we are working for the client and not the other way around. Somebody needs to make sure we're adhering professionally, that there's just some standard of oversight. That leads to a really great point. The field of food addiction is an unregulated field. The field of coaching is an unregulated field. There are no standards or any overseeing body if people are practicing as a coach or a food addiction professional. I'm so glad that you recognized this is a missing piece. And we want to stand in the gap and have some kind of code of ethics for food addiction professionals. Um, Molly and I were working together um, with some others to draft a code of ethics for food addiction professionals to have some form of accountability. Molly, if you could say a little bit more about that and what we included there. Sure. What we did is we took a look at some of the other ethical standards that are out there like NADAC and ASAM, which are big organizations that set the bar for treatment and education and research on addiction. We took from those documents and made our own. We need to be aware of confidentiality and informed consent. We have to remember that there is personal health information and every country has its own. In the United States, it's HIPAA, which is like the Health Information Protection and Privacy Act. In Canada, I know it's called something similar. What is it called, Bethany? Yeah, it's PHIPAA, so Personal Health Information Protection Act. Exactly. Each country has its own. We have to remember that we are getting personal health information from these individuals. If we're asking somebody their weight, which I never do, but I know there are coaches that do, that is private health information, how we're going to protect and keep that information confidential. If we're keeping records, how are we keeping those? This is for the the consumer or the listener to ask these questions. How are you keeping my private health protected? Who else has access to this information? Will it ever be shared without my knowledge and consent? Just want to ask you if there's any questions that come up when you think about ethics. Yeah, I certainly have that conversation with my client ahead of time. We talk about confidentiality. We talk about the times when I would have to share that information. If they were a risk to themselves or harm to others, that would be the only time that I would have to share their information and take actionable steps without their consent. Otherwise, anyone in their family could call me and I may not even confirm whether they're a client of mine. It's important to know for my client to know that no matter what, I am not going to share their personal information with another family member, their partner, um, their kids. This is a safe place. I am the only one that has access on a hard file to this and that it's not even out there on the web. Keep their records 10 years. And at that time, that they will be destroyed and shredded. I think that hearing that in the past has made me feel really safe as a client. I've actually even put some of these things into a client agreement 
that gets shared up front. So if you want to work with me, here's the client agreement. This leads into another point. We have to acknowledge where the balance of power is in a relationship um, with our clients. They're coming to us at a time when they're really vulnerable, right? They're sharing all kinds of things with us. We always want to both hold that in confidence and give it a place of honor. We never want to do things that would improperly influence them because they're looking to us as the clinician or as an authority. I'm very quick with clients to give that power right back to them if they start to hand it over to me and say, what do you think is best in this situation? I might have some ideas, but you are the author here of your life and you get to decide what happens. I am not going to set out a program for you. I might make suggestions, but you hold the balance of, of the power of what happens in your life. I also think it's really important to add about the therapeutic relationship. We know that power imbalance exists that can potentially be abused. We want to be mindful. There's no romantic encounters or no outside exchanges of gifts or money that would cross a therapeutic boundary. We need to be mindful about how much personal information my therapist coach is sharing with me and are they dominating the conversation? Because this is a space for you. This is a space where you to speak your truth. If you are finding that you're constantly listening to what happened in the therapist's personal life, this is not appropriate. That therapist needs to have a stronger boundary. Absolutely. I think another thing that's important about ethics is that the provider is practicing within the limits of their scope of practice. So if I'm going to my general physician and, and I have a messed up knee like I do now, they're going to send me to the orthopedic surgeon to have that checked out. That's not their area of expertise. They can help me a bit, but potentially they could end up hurting me in the long run. It's about practicing within the limits of our scope. I talk to people about this all the time. Remind them, listen, here's the deal. I'm not a dietitian. I am not a nutritionist. I can't and won't give you a food plan, but here's what I can do. I can treat the food as a substance of abuse. I know how to treat substances of abuse. I don't have to be a cocaine dealer or expert in cocaine to be able to say, listen, cocaine is tearing up your life. <laughs> it's, it's wrecking things. Maybe we should look at changing that relationship. So the same is true with food. I practice within the limits of my scope there. Another important um, limits to how and where we can practice. I am licensed in Montana only. I always let people know, listen, if I am your therapist, if I'm using my license, you have to physically be in the state of Montana because anybody outside of that is outside of my scope of practice when it comes to therapy. So if I'm working with you as a recovery coach and there's stuff coming up that I'm like, Ooh, this is like, trauma or this is some self-harm or self-injury talk, I'm going to make the recommendation and help you find that provider that can help you that's in your area. What are some other thoughts you have on that? I totally agree. I think that what happens is when it comes to food addiction or disordered eating, emotional eating is often present. There's almost always something deeper going on. So the food is the substance of choice. We can work with managing cravings and making food choices, but then recognizing that it often go deeper and having that awareness of where does my lane start and stop on this. I can be trauma informed, but there are things that have happened about childhood woundings. I can really hold that 
hold it gently and professionally in order to promote safety with them and also ensure that they are speaking to someone else who is a trauma therapist. That's not my necessarily my area of expertise. I don't want to do them any harm by dabbling or giving them advice. I'm very clear with people when it comes to a certain modality. If I'm not clinically trained in it, I will say, okay, I'm not certified in this. Then we need to refer or work in tandem with some other professionals to make sure that the client has the support that they need. I can't be everything to someone. I think that plays into kind of our next topic, which is about comorbidities with mental health and addiction. There may be depression, there may be anxiety. And sometimes I hear colleagues in the field saying, oh, once you get rid of the substance, the depression and anxiety goes away. We know that's just not real. A lot of depression is clinical. It is sometimes treatment resistant. It was there before the food addiction and is going to persist after the food addiction. Therefore, I'm going to be very mindful to not speak to my clients about any medications. I may have them disclose some of the medications they are on if I am making any supplement recommendations, but I'm still going to advise them, see their pharmacist or their physician, if there's anything that might be contraindicated with what we're suggesting, because this is not my lane, this is not my field. I may know that some of these things may be beneficial for other people and have worked in the past and generally as safe, but we still don't know every single individual's history. And oftentimes clients may feel uncomfortable sharing exactly what medications they are on with me. It is really a best line of defense to say, just your pharmacist is going to have a list of all the medications you're on. Go check in with them, see if anything's contraindicated. If I do have an, an individual on my care, I'm going to make sure they have a treatment team to support them. Maybe they're on some depression meds. Maybe they're seeing a psychiatrist. Maybe they're part of a depression uh, support group that is only going to add value to their food addiction recovery, that I am here to talk to them about what can we do about the food. We can certainly be managing that, but if the medication is not working and they are experiencing any kind of suicidal ideation, I am not their first line to call. They have a safety plan that's already set up prior and I can be there to support and listen to the after care that might be required for that, but I am not there in those moments of danger. The great question to ask is, hey, if I have some kind of crisis or mental health diagnosis or a history of trauma, how do you deal with that? Do you work with those other providers? Do you reach out to them? If I give you permission, go back to what are your qualifications? What is your training? Trauma-informed is different than being an actual uh, person who specializes in trauma. Trauma-informed means that we know how to spot trauma and not make things worse, not leave you what's called walking wounded out there in the world, not creating re-victimization cycles. There are actual trauma therapies that are appropriate for treating trauma. What you said, Clarissa, really brings home the point that we need to be asking these questions. We also need to be asking about eating disorder crossover because it happens a lot in the food addiction world. There's a big crossover between binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa 
food addiction and anorexia nervosa also has some crossover when we are offering the Yale food addiction scale or any other assessment tool to help us determine if this is food addiction or not. We have to remember that those scales are not perfect. Whoever is doing the assessing needs to understand eating disorder because those eating disorder types can flag as food addiction. And that isn't the full picture. I wanted to share when we are looking at the research done by David Wiss and Ashley Gerhardt at the prevalence of food addiction, they're all seeing that there's about a 48 to 95% chance that person also has bulimia nervosa followed by binge eating disorder, which is about 55 to 80%. These people are are probably going to be on the spectrum of both. Anorexia nervosa, 44 to 70%. Anorexia nervosa is something that it can be very life-threatening and requires a very specialized approach, more particularly binge purge type anorexia that or restrictive type anorexia that you require a higher level of care than just a food addiction professional. You want someone who is informed in both eating disorders and food addiction. This is a super important point because there's so much crossover here. When I work with people, I give them screens ahead of time that look at both food addiction and disordered eating. I'm never going to say after filling out one of those screens, oh, looks like you have an eating disorder. No, that it's more to give a flavor for what they're experiencing so that we know how to gear treatment. Because if we're only trained in one area, it's a little bit of a, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If I'm only trained in eating disorders, then I'm only going to be trying to get people to a place of moderation. If I'm only trained in food addiction, I'm only going to be able to use abstinence as the main tool. There's so many people, uh, myself included, one or the other isn't what works for me. I have to have someone who knows both because I have both. You have to find that intersection of what's going to work for you, perhaps that we have some loving limits around abstinence, but not so much abstinence and restriction that an eating disorder gets then triggered. So many people, especially if they've done many restrictive diets, can easily be triggered if we hand them a food plan that has none of their favorite foods on it. Have that conversation. Hey, we have to come at this from both sides and find the plan that works for you. That's very individual. I have all like clients who can have a potato and it doesn't light them up. And another client who will, at the sight of a potato, they're off to the races. You have to work so individually with people. This dogma from either side, food addiction or eating disorder worlds, really don't serve the clients very well at all. It's really important that we're asking these questions when we offer a free phone call, free Zoom. Sometimes they're 15 minutes, sometimes they're 30 minutes. Sometimes people give the whole first session free uh, to be asking these kinds of questions. Hey, are you a harm reduction clinician? Are you abstinence only? Are you trained in eating disorders? If you're a person without eating disorder and you know that, then you probably don't have to ask that question. But to know that it's okay to give us a call or email us, we should not be afraid to answer these questions. We should be giving you very clear, very specific answers. You shouldn't have to get out your decoder ring to try to figure out what we're saying. Like you said, Bethany, sometimes 
when we have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's okay to ask these questions. It's okay to say, hey, what is your definition of abstinence? What is your definition of recovery? Because I know for me, somebody asked me that I'm going to say, what does it matter what my definitions are? They apply to me only. What are yours? I know that there are both sides and I shouldn't call it sides like as if they're at war. There there are kind of like these camps, right? The eating disorder camp will say recovery is defined as if you're eating all foods in moderation and all foods fit for all people. I don't mean to be so reductionist about it, but it's something to that effect. And the addiction world might say you have to be abstinence from the substance and that's the only way. You can't have recovery without that. An important thing to remember is that there is no one way to recover, that we can treat these things concurrently. Things like comorbid depression, anxiety, eating disorder, they can be treated concurrently. You don't have to do one just because one camp or one voice is out there telling you that's what how it has to go. It's important to ask your clinician or coach, what happens if I can't stop? What if I can't stop binging and purging? What if I can't stop eating the chocolate? What if I can't stop doing the things that I'm hiring you to help me for. I would say I've never fired anybody in the history for continuing to have the issue they came to get help for. I agree wholeheartedly uh, with that, Molly. What that would do to someone if they're struggling to even get one day without the substances that are hurting them, their own sort of what we would call red light foods, those things that they want to stay away from, and they're struggling with that. And then I come along and say, you're failing or you start the clock over. I just think how much more guilt and shame that produces for them. It's not going to teach them how to be loving with themselves or how to trust themselves in the end, which is where I like to take people. I like to try and build that trust within their own inner system so that they can have some resilience. If they do have a slip, they're going to be able to come back from that quicker and quicker each time. If we're weighing them down with a lot of shame about having the slip in the first place, that's just going to do damage. Now there's all these emotions coming around. I'm not good enough. Why can't I do this? What's wrong with me? That's preventing them from then even just giving it another try. I really love also what you said about no one way, one right way to recover, because I've heard it said that you need to get 100% clean with the food before you can work on some of these other issues. I don't agree with that. I think everyone is different. And yes, there may be some level if you are having a a great quantity of mind altering substances like ultra processed food, it is going to impact your ability to be able to do some of the work. But to what extent it's going to be different for one person versus another. Some people do have a better tolerance than other people. So I would never say to someone, we can't work on that until you get clean. That's just something that would set them back. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. Hi there, this is Bethany Mazru. It's no secret that the holidays are coming, and typically for me, holiday food and gatherings have tripped me up. Every year, despite my best intentions, I was either eating all the holiday treats or I was abstaining from everything with as much willpower as I could muster, and then collapsing afterwards. But for the past couple of years, I've made a game plan that was like no other I had ever tried before, and it worked. If you have ever felt anxious about the holidays and food, join me for a workshop that will help you design your very own, one-of-a-kind, customized game plan for the holidays. In this workshop, 
you will learn what makes the holidays so challenging. You will set your own intention. You will make a detailed plan that works for you. You will learn about self-care and integrate that into your plan. You will plan your boundaries for the holidays. You'll leverage any food slips and you will glean learnings from your own post-holiday debrief to propel you forward. What will you get? You'll get the Sweet Sobriety Holiday Game Plan Template. You'll get guidance to completing your plan with four video modules to watch at your own pace and four one-hour live support sessions. These are group coaching sessions in December that will be recorded in case you miss them. The cost for this workshop is $50 US and you can register for it on the sweetsobriety.ca platform. And it actually doesn't matter what holiday you're planning, whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah or Easter or vacation, this course can help you prepare your own customized game plan to come through it and be proud of yourself for staying in recovery. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. Yeah, I think our job as professionals is to provide hope. I had a, a interesting a client this morning say to me, do you ever get tired of this? Like I, I keep showing up and I tell you the same stuff. And I was like, you keep showing up. You keep trying. We never know. We as clinicians never know the time it's going to stick for you. As long as you keep trying, we are here to keep supporting. And that is the key to recovery. This is a lifelong process. It's never going to be just this one quick fix. There's times that certain individuals I've worked with have thought they had it and then it didn't stick. There's also times when they've been really struggling and all of a sudden they get it. We just never know. Our role is to help to keep motivating you and supporting you no matter where you are at. The best relationship we can have with you is one where you feel like you can tell us anything and there is no judgment. We should be providing you with the safest, place possible for you to be your most authentic self. Because when we can be that vulnerable, we recover. I think a lot of people come in with guilt and shame and they're bracing themselves because they think that they're going to get that from us too. A client will message me and say, oh no, I ate this and I'm, I'm, I didn't want to tell you because they were afraid of that. I'm never going to add to the shame that they're already heaping on themselves. They're struggling. Just we have all struggled at times too. I love that, that we are, we're basically dealers in hope. What are some other questions when you think about hiring your own coach or therapist or professional that kind of come to mind? Oh, there are so many. I... I love this process. I have switched recently my own different treatment provider, and it was like an interview process. I got to ask, how many clients have you had with similar circumstances? I specifically researched a somatic therapist, so I knew what they practiced, but it could be important to say, do you do dialectical behavior therapy? Do you do cognitive behavioral therapy? Are you trauma-informed? Those kind of questions to, to figure out what modality they work with. Do you have any strengths and do you have any limitations? What does a typical session with you look like? How long are the sessions? Am I going to be doing homework in between sessions? Do I need anything to prepare? 
These kind of questions are going to actually set me up for success. I now know going into this relationship with this professional, what my responsibility is going to be. I like Clarissa just had to switch providers again. I tried you out for six months. It was not a good fit. (laughs) See you later. I have agency over my recovery and it's okay. That relationship didn't work out. There's no ill will one way or the other. We both understand why I can move forward getting the help I need. How about you, Bethany? Yeah, I think one of the things that I would encourage people is research. Sometimes you know what you're after, but sometimes you don't exactly know what you're after or what kind of modality might work best for you. You could start to get a flavor for what they're like if they have social media or podcasts or videos. You can listen to how they think about things, how they approach things. Is that something that jives for me? Is this someone I could feel comfortable sharing Um, with? Is their style going to fit me? Is this what I need? Because there's so many different approaches and they might not all work for us. We might need one thing at one point in our lives and something different later. I usually say to people too, look, I'm happy to work with you for a while if you feel like it's a good fit, but I never want you to feel like you have to stick with me because you've shared things with me and we've gained some history together I've had this scenario with hairdressers. I go to a hairdresser for a while, and then I think there's something different for me that might work better, or there's something with the hairdresser that has made me uncomfortable. I had such a hard time, especially if I had been with that person for a while, quote unquote, divorcing my hairdresser. It's so funny that we have that people pleasing. I always want to reassure people that you get to say for how long we work together. You get to say how often we see each other. There's no set schedule here. There's nothing I'm going to lock you into. There's no program that you need to be with me for a certain amount of time. And if at any point you want to leave, I would like to just know that's what you're doing instead of a ghosting kind of maneuver. But at any point, feel comfortable to say, you know, I think I need something different. I bless them on their way and say, I want what's best for you. If that's not me, that is fantastic. Maybe I'd even help them find someone if they know what they're looking for. That you sound like you work on a very individual basis, but we know that's not always the case in this field, that there often is a program, the locked in amount of sessions. As the consumer, it's going to be really important for you to know, do they have a refund policy? If I miss a session, am I going to get charged for it? What does that look like? What if I find halfway through the program, I'm not feeling this therapist anymore? Do I have a way to get out? Make sure you can protect yourself before you lock into anything. And if you are unsure, maybe that's not the right person for you. Just keep searching because there is a lot of food addiction professionals in this space. It's like speed dating sometimes where you do a few different 30-minute sessions, never sign up during the 30-minute session. This is something I want you to take time with, leave, sleep on, Wake up the next day, see how you feel and do that with a few different people because everyone is going to sell themselves to you in some way in a session. Of course, someone's going to ask me if I can help them. I like to believe that I can help them. I'm going to tell you that I will create a treatment plan and program for you. That is 100% true. Everyone is going to share that with you. That is where you need to see, okay, do I need to ask more questions? 
Do I need a bit more time to really consider this? How big is this financial investment for me? This is a big commitment and it's a really important relationship to not go into half-heartedly. You touched on something really important there, Claire. I wanted to expand a little bit. If you're feeling any kind of pressure with someone to act now, or this is only for today, or this pricing won't last, that is designed to create a sense of urgency. I have definitely fallen prey to that in the past, but now I have a mindset of, okay, if this is really worth it, it's going to wait until I can check it out. I can kick the tires and I can be really sure of it. On that note, I think that really takes us into this idea of asking about chart the fees. If you are talking to somebody who has a program, what does that cost? What's entailed in that cost? Are they transparent upfront? Do you have to get through a free consultation and they tell you, hey, I can help you? Are they being transparent in their information? You shouldn't have to sit through that infomercial feel like you should actually be getting value. Even in that first 30 minute consultation, when you call, be ready to know what you want or have those questions. Don't let them sell themselves to you. You want them to work for you, not the other way around. This is an unedited field. I think about citing fee scales and people taking out loans to get treatment. It's very hard to get insurance to cover it. There are ways, especially when you come to one of the three of us where we take insurance and we can bill for it. There are codes that we can use to help cover it. I tell people, if you're not in Montana, I can't take your insurance. But here's the thing, because I am a licensed professional, sometimes when you have health savings accounts or flex money accounts, you can get services covered I'm going to be upfront with you if you ask those questions, but it's not something that I freely give because I'm not going to owe myself. I don't want to give you this false sense of hope that somehow your services will get covered and then we're not a good fit. I don't want it to be pressure because I have low fees. I have the availability on my schedule to see whatever factors might be. You can ask these questions about refunds, sliding fee scales. Do I need a loan? I don't think a lot of people know what a sliding scale fee is and that professionals sometimes do offer it depending on what your financial situation is. If you have found the person that you want to work with, ask, do you have a sliding scale fee that, that you offer to people who can't afford your services? You can ask and they can say no. You might be surprised at what's available, or maybe they have additional ideas or resources to provide you at a level that fits your finances, because that is our goal to give you help. There should never be shame speaking about your financial capabilities or capacity to pay for services. If somebody says, well, you have to meet with me every month and you're like, I can only meet every two weeks financially, that needs to be good enough for them. They can't say, oh, no, then you can't recover. That makes my blood boil because we work for you. That is the most important thing. You do have the power in the relationship. If you are getting that pushback, then this is not the right fit for you. It feels highly manipulative. It always reminds me of when I go to the chiropractor for an adjustment and then they're like, okay, come back in two days and then come back three days after that. And you're, don't I get the opportunity to check things out between sessions and see how my body's feeling. And if I need to come back, then I get to come back. Right? It's so frustrating and it feels really manipulative. I'd say if you're getting that pressure, if the, if the person is saying, do you want it bad enough? Or um, aren't you worth it? That to me is a red flag. 
Of course, you're worth it. Shop around. What is being charged versus what you get? Do you get enough live support for the price that you're paying? Many of us as food addicts, we're self-starters. We're go-getters. I'm going to do things myself. What I have learned is that I do need a community. I do need people, not just the coach or therapist. Do you have groups or can I access some kind of peer group to be able to reach out with them? We need people around us to be vulnerable with them. What are they offering in terms of that? Are they plugged into group support? Where can you find that tribe? We really just can't go it alone. And I suggest if you have the courage and you see somebody, maybe it's in Vera's Facebook group or Instagram, and they have a recovery journey that you aspire to, ask them, how did they get help? Did they work with someone? Usually the people we know have great resources. By asking for that, it may open you up to a whole world of more potential support than you even aspire to in the first place. I really want to thank everyone for joining us today. This is an episode where we would love your feedback. Please let us know, are there areas that we didn't highlight that you want us to touch on? Are there any other questions you'd like us to answer in the future? We'd love to continue this conversation. What I need from my food addiction professional, what I can ask of my food addiction professional. So you feel protected going into this relationship forward at the Food Junkies podcast. You, our listener, is why we do what we do. 100%. Just remember, there's no dumb question, right? There's no dumb question. If it is a question that you have, ask it. And if that person is a safe person to consider continuing to explore, could this be my professional? They're going to answer and not make you feel silly for having asked that question. They're going to be kind, honest, upfront, and transparent. Thank you, Clarissa, for um, helping moderate this uh, conversation. Thank you, Bethany, for joining us on the Food Junkies podcast. It's been really nice to chat with you about these things because they're important. And again, as a reminder, we're human beings too, and we have our own professionals and we ask the same thing. So thanks again, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.